0: Hello everybody. We're gonna start now, so I hope I've got your full attention. I've got a note here which says, Dear Chairperson, please announce at the beginning of your session, if you have ordered a printed paper book and not yet collected, please collect this from the registration desk during the tea break. Okay, so you've all got that message. So, The topic today, um, I must say I'm not uh, too familiar with the content, Uh, I read the paper uh, uh, about a couple of days ago and um, it uh, it makes for quite interesting reading and I hope we'll we'll have a good uh, discussion today. Dan said his his talk isn't that long, so um, I'm going to rely on the audience. To, to ask those difficult questions, and even if you think it's a silly question, please ask it. You know they always say there's no silly questions, just silly people, so don't be afraid to ask that question. Um, uh, today, Dan's going to do most of the talking, um, and he's, he he did it, he did this project as part of his honors, and then Torin and himself they did a bit more work to 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 get this uh, ready for the uh, for for the convention today. So Tar will actually be introducing um, uh, Dan and we'll be giving you guys a bit of background on the topic and so on, and then I'll try to facilitate a bit of debate afterwards. But as Dan's doing his presentation, um, please please stop in and, and, and ask those questions. If you've got a strong view, you think it's uh, tree-hugging nonsense, or if you're on the other side, you think it's got real substance, please, we, we want to, to hear all the views. So thanks, and over to, to Taryn.
1: Thanks, Neil. Um I have the great pleasure of introducing Dan and this paper. Um, So Dan was an uh, honours honours student last year, and basically this was his um, project that he did uh, for honours, and then we've worked on it for the conference. But how this topic came about was basically from uh, my PhD, which is being supervised by Professor Rob Thompson, on um, the measurement of environmental, social, and economic sustainability and how it affects actuaries. If you have attended um, the presentation we did last year, hopefully what you would have got out of it is that it's very conceptual at this stage, it's really our thoughts and ideas of where sustainability is going and how it should be measured. Um, So we would really appreciate as much input as possible, Um, and I think that... um, For us specifically, um, we found that we had a very steep learning curve to verse ourselves in the environment and society when we're so used to financial modeling. Um, So we had, Dan and myself had a similar uh, problem when I was his supervisor. Um, But what I can say about Dan is that he has very strong opinions and views um, about the economic bottom line versus the financial bottom line, which made supervising him extremely, challenging and interesting, um, so hopefully you'll, you'll find um, in the presentation that his views come across and some of mine as well. Um, but I think the purpose of the presentation is really to put out the, the whole concept of the difference between uh, these two bottom lines, and we really want to have a, a good debate about it. Thank you.
2: Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm just wondering, is everyone alright if I just come down a level over here and walk around? Can everyone still see me? Any objections? All fine. Perfect. Yeah, I do like to engage with the audience as much as possible. So, thank you very much for attending and I do hope to ruffle some feathers today and I do hope that I'll have some fantastic questions and dialogue and debate because I'm going to be dealing with a topic which is going to be perhaps one of the most important questions of the 21st century in how the world and society copes with available resources whilst ensuring that we have sustainable economic growth. So essentially, I'm going to be asking the question, what is this economic bottom line? I mean, I've never really heard about that. Um, the issues, the attitude, and solutions that deal with it. And of course, ultimately, uh, what we as actuaries can do about it. So without further ado, let me just introduce the topic. So. Sustainability is becoming quite an important concept in the forefront of governments, in the forefront of corporates, individuals, and it can be quite self-evident. So, over the last 15 to 20 years, the world has become a bit more attuned into trying to achieve sustainability. We had the World Summit in Johannesburg 13 years ago, which failed uh, largely to, to address the issue. There's no real definition on what constitutes sustainability, but perhaps an intuitive explanation would be the ability for a generation to equitably use the resources of the world in order to to sustain and improve economic growth, whilst not indebting the future generation in terms of their ability to carry on with this process. Essentially we have three concepts which come we have the concepts of people or society the planet or the environment and ultimately economic growth financial growth profits and This is what makes up the triple bottom line framework now the triple bottom line framework It deals with the economic bottom line Which is the subject of what I'm about to talk of now as well as the environmental and social bottom line Which I will briefly go into um, but essentially, I want to describe what the economic bottom line does. So, the economic bottom line essentially is taking the financial bottom line, which we all know is profits, it's what we, we work with our companies, it's what we work for at the end of the day, and we adjust it by using externalities. So, going back to economics, an externality is an external cost that is the result of production, and the cost or benefit may also be a benefit is born by a third party. So if you were to take an environmental externality, I like to always use an example of a paper mill company in Pumalanga, and the environmental externality is that they are taking out the indigenous trees, planting it with pine forests. Um, The alien flora is not as good as preventing soil erosion. It sucks up a lot of water. It may not actually help the ecosystem in terms of um, Ensuring that rivers aren't as polluted and as a result a cost will be borne on society in terms of having to um, Work out the pollutants out of a system um, Likely a social personality for use, using the same example would be taking this paper mill And it's fantastic that they're making all these profits. They're selling good paper, but the fumes that they're letting out are Finding their ways into the lungs of the villagers around and they have to go to the state hospital and Obviously they're using part of the public healthcare healthcare system which is a cost on society so it's all very well if you're making hundred million rands in profit every year but if 70 million rands goes towards putting part of the hospital system you're only really making 30 Um, and finally an economic externality is an externality which hinders the ability of another entity to produce economically but essentially I'm going to be focusing on more on the environmental and social externalities of production so Taking profits and adjusting for externalities will take us to the economic bottom line. So now that I've introduced the concept, I wanna work out what are the issues in terms of doing this? So why hasn't society already implemented this? You know, why, why is it not really part of the zeitgeist at this point in time? So the most obvious one is measurement. So how the heck do we actually measure the cost of externalities? This is perhaps the crux of the issue, um, or at least a core issue. And in doing this, we have, we have to try and determine, well, uh, hands up in this room as a matter of interest, who would know where to start? No one, <laughs> right, yeah, I didn't either. So, <laughs> so um, essentially, it's not, you know, so if, if you sort of take deforestation as an example, we know that we would be cutting down trees, and we're going to be losing a lot of biodiversity, we'll be losing a lot of oxygen, we'll be losing a lot of the carbon sponge, and how do we actually quantify that? And that will need to be done. Ultimately, we'll need to be able to build a model that can discount the cash flows on that excess carbon in the atmosphere, which may impact on productivity and agriculture on another continent, uh, which in turn may affect the water supply because, you know, uh, in terms of being in a localized environment. So how do we actually measure it? And the truth is that, you know, even if we could, how would we quantify it? Now, I'll get more into reduction, reductionism later, but quantification is going to be extremely important because some externalities may be more important to measure or more easy to measure than other ones. So let's say, you know, I have a pond which I'm taking water out of, I'm polluting it, I need it for my purposes, I ideally would be able to measure How much water I'm taking out, and precisely how much it'll cost me to replace the water in terms of having, you know, in terms of trying to restore it to its natural state. I can get a rand value for that, that is possible. What I may not be able to measure is let's say there was an endangered species that was in this so called pond, and it doesn't really matter how much I try to restore it, I'm never going to get that endangered species back if I lead it towards extinction. And that's where we need to be very careful. And finally, once we actually, you know, work out how we're going to measure this, and I will get, I will get into this a bit later in terms of the current approaches that I've been taking, um, how is this methodology going to actually be applied? You know, um, is it? Are we going to, to to measure it in random amounts? Are we going to sort of have a credit system? Will it actually be consistent across borders? How are we going to implement it on a global scale? Um, because ultimately. It would be great for, you know, South Africa comes up with some legislation that uses some ingenious concept to measure externalities and either penalize or reward firms for incorporating them. But all that firm is going to do is substitute production to another country if it's not actually found throughout the globe. And in terms of consistency, this is going to be a very important issue. So, again, some externalities are easy to measure than others. So for the ones that are tangible, for example, you know, replacing water in a pond, we'll be able to charge a firm out for using that resource. But if we have an externality which is a bit more intangible or, or harder to measure, that needs some ridiculous mathematics or data which we, we may not have at this point, a company which does actually um, cause an externality which is quite hard on the environment or on society may not land up being taxed for it simply because we don't know how to do it so even though they are actually you know um, giving us a well worse off effect of production they won't be taxed for it and the poor company who's actually managing their externalities better will end up being taxed for something because we'll have a sort of way to tax them and this may lead to a bit of cherry picking between companies and countries so we got to make sure that we are fair um, this is not going to really work if it's not completely equitable. Then, let's just say we get to, you know, we, we work out the way to measure it. We've we got some fantastic mathematics. We've got great data. We have a multidisciplinary approach, which has brought us to measuring, measuring it great. We then get to the issue of, of ethics. And essentially, well, is this the right thing to do? So, I've touched into reductionism. And essentially, to go more into it, and this is where the debate does get quite contested, i need to explain, just briefly mention the social and environmental bottom lines. So this is where it can be a bit confusing. The economic bottom line takes profits, accounts for externalities, and once we have that, we have the true economic value added, which is measured in monetary terms. We're giving an actual brand value to what that firm is doing. And as I mentioned, um, if we're talking about biodiversity or things which are a bit less intangible or such as human well-being, that that is meant to be measured in the environmental and social bottom line. It's not the nature of this talk, but it is sort of a mechanism that helps with reductionism. Now, while the debate gets interesting here is that I'm of the view that if we can, if we can, uh, we should try and quantify something in as monetary a way as possible Because ultimately, it's all very well to say, well, this isn't really helping, this isn't environmentally great, and if we can sort of get a voluntary regime to make sure that people's environmental and social bottom lines are in check, that's fantastic, but I'm worried that um, if there's no way to sort of measure it, or at least account for it, there's no way to manage it. And ultimately, the best way to ensure sustainability will be through accountability. So... Uh, once again this touches on on the previous issue of trying to be consistent we need to be able to draw an analogy that a firm cannot operate surely in financial terms but it should in economic terms and the analogy may be valid if we take a look at this view so let's say I start a company and it's going well and I decide I decide to gear myself out of oblivion and I'm borrowing I'm borrowing and I'm making some profits and it's going well but I'm not actually but eventually I can't cover my interests I'm continually indebted I'm perpetually indebted eventually I'll become bankrupt and I will actually go out of business and that is just the free markets way of trying to address the mechanism of inefficient economic production and that is certainly valid in financial terms when it comes to environmental and social externalities we can use exactly the same logic so in terms of So instead of borrowing financially from banks and other institutions, we can say that if we we are borrowing resources from the environment or from society and we're not putting them back in because future generations are going to have to pay for this, there's going to be less good quality water, there's going to be fewer natural resources that we can use, the public health system is going to take strain. It makes sense, therefore, that the company will have to pay back the value of those externalities because otherwise they should not be in business if we use the same analogy as someone who's perpetually taking out a loan. And in terms of these externalities themselves, we're going to have to be dealing with the philosophy of trade-offs. So let's just say in a perfect world we've sorted this out and we have a company which has um, essentially, again sticking with my paper example, given out fumes, causing a lot of lung disease and they decide, okay well that's, that's fantastic let's just plant a forest over there and the forest according to this world is worth 100 million rands of, of, of goodwill and we lost 100 million rand, 100 million rands worth of, well, not goodwill in the hospital bill. So we've offset it and it's great, fine, fantastic, let's get back to our business. That may not necessarily be ethical or palatable in the context of what we're trying to achieve. Uh, again, it touches on reductionism. Just because we've sort of put a monetary value something doesn't necessarily mean it's completely compatible with uh, a rand value in in, in, such as you would in some sort of coin or currency. So we're thinking perhaps that if you were to sort of institute a, a code of conduct or a regime it may be better to trade off externalities within categories. So you pollute water it may be more palatable to plant a forest. It'll be even more preferable to do it in a more narrow defined range. So you cause deforestation, it's, your onus is now to cause reforestation. So hopefully, if uh, this um, ideology can be can be inputs, it'll be able to be consistent from a philosophical perspective. And in that way, we'll be able to actually deal with the ethics of the issues. So the two main things which have come right now is how are we going to measure these externalities? Are we actually going to be able to do it in a consistent manner? And ultimately, how will we do it in a way that is not morally repugnant but it's morally acceptable because of reductionism. So now that we're dealing with the the philosophy of the issue, we can deal with what is actually happening in the world today with regards to externality incorporation. So I don't know how many of you have heard of the Global Reporting Initiative, but it's quite a widely accepted framework into how we deal with sustainability. And essentially what it is is... It's a framework which claims to be outcome space. So you see a firm and it's like, uh, you're showing environmental responsibility, tech, social responsibility, tech, economic responsibility. Try not to pollute too much. Yeah, I think I did that. Well, you, you kept your carbon emissions down a bit less than last year. Yeah, I think so maybe. But ultimately, you're not really being accountable because as we may know from some of the companies you work for in, in an individual professional capacity, um, Ticking boxes isn't really where you want to go, because anyone can lie by ticking boxes, right? I've, I can also say I've you know, i passed a subject in school, but it's very different if I pass with 50% as opposed to 100%. If you quantify something, it gives real value. And unfortunately, the Global Reporting Initiative isn't about quantification. They haven't actually tried to do that. And it leads to firms who actually aren't being socially and environmentally responsible Cynically claiming they are to be because they fulfill certain criteria, but they are meaningless in sustainability terms. And this is quite common in the current circles that we find in, in, in trying to find solutions to sustainability. And it was quite frustrating trying to go through the, the literature. It's very thin in terms of externality measurement. But eventually, um, we did find something which does hold a bit of promise in terms of the framework that may occur and that is the environmental profit and loss account system. So I'm not going to go into the entire methodology. Uh, You're more than welcome to come to me and I'll refer you to the paper and the methods. But basically, it is a way of incorporating environmental externalities, not social, however, but environmental externalities, and was tried out for the first time in 2011. And for those of you who like Puma shoes and are environmentalists or socially responsible people, you'll be happy to know that Puma was the first company that got into this and it found a way to quantify the use of their externalities and as you can see just using the running total over there on the right hand side, on the right hand side their total externalities came to a value of 145 million dollars. To give it context, Fuma's profit for that year was 300 million dollars. So the environmental impact of Fuma's operations were half of their financial profit. So that might give you an indication of true economic value added, of where that resource borrowing that might come around to give trouble to future generations in the future is ultimately coming from. Again, the way that that the environmental profit and loss account works is it gives a positive, if you're giving a positive externality, a negative for a negative externality. It uses very fancy tools and mathematics called environmentally extended input-output tables. It inputs water greenhouse gases, land pollution, air pollution, and comes out with this number. And what's quite interesting to see, is how they, derived, uh, how they actually came up with this number. So, for those of you who may be familiar with how you know, shoes can be manufactured, well, it's not like you walk into a shop and it's like, fantastic, those shoes look great, I'm gonna impress some of the girls or the guys this weekend with them, they're fantastic. There's quite a process that happens, and it all starts with the water cycle. So you have rain walking, rain falling on the farm that eventually causes crops to grow. The crops are used as feed for cattle, and obviously the cattle are used for the leather, and only then does the leather go into factory where Puma may have core operations. So what's quite important to see, just going back one slide again, is that in its core operations, which is Puma operations, its total externalities was $8 million. The 145 million that we're referring to is the sum of this from tier one, two, three, and four, which um, is simply analogous to explaining this process over here. So tier one will be the basic, it will be the crops. Tier two will be the cattle. Tier three will be the leather. Tier four, work in the factories. And for those who are students in biology, you'll know that in order to grow one kilogram of crops, you'll need many liters of water. And in order to grow one kilogram of meat, you'll need many kilograms of crops right which is unfortunate so for those of you who hit the gym you'll know how much effort that may take to put on one kilogram of muscle but essentially it uses up a lot of resources and so along the entire supply chain we have a very liberal use of environmental resources so it may look fantastic that puma in its core operations, perhaps it's in its selling and marketing and putting the product together, is using seven million dollars. But in its entire operation scheme, one hundred and forty-five million dollars is being used. So the question is: um, Hands up! I just want—I just want to see, as a matter of interest, um, would you rather Puma be charged for the seven million dollars for core operations, or should they be held accountable for the full one hundred and forty-five million? So I would just like to see a hands up for option one would you charge $7 million? Right. Option two, charge the full $145 million. Okay, that's very interesting. So hopefully we can have some good debate about this afterwards. Um, An issue is that it will be important to hold a company accountable for its entire supply chain. However, um, for students of economics will know, we've also got to be careful of double counting. So whenever we measure GDP, we always need to take a look at the benefits of beneficiation and only use that part which has been benefited past raw material to see what true economic value added is. So if a farmer grows crops, sells it for, you know, sells it for 50 Rand onto um, someone who has a cow, and the cow gets sold for 100 Rand, you can't say, great, GDP is 50 plus 100 is 150. It doesn't work that way. It's 50 plus the 50 that was added. So that's gonna be quite interesting to see how we would actually work out through externalities. So, we're dealing with measurements, with ethics, we're dealing with potential issues, we've dealt with that, of how, potential methodologies of how we can deal with this topic. Now, what are the attitudes of the current corporates? So as we know, if you take a current current corporate, a company, in a capitalist society with money, you put them together, you will get the profit motive, which is a financial concept right which posits that the ultimate goal of a business is to make money if you're a shareholder you want to make money you want that bottom line you want to be able to you know feed yourself go on holiday have a great time that's ultimately what the most you want out of your company so businesses seek to benefit themselves and all their shareholders by maximizing profits right so I'm not one of these sort of super hippie people who's like this is evil and terrible I think this is fantastic I, th- I personally think that capitalism has brought more progress, financial progress, to mankind than any other system. It leads to innovation. It's led to longevity extensions. It's led to people people being able to use their brains in a spirit of thought which has brought wonder onto the world. Perhaps one of its largest issues, and there are large issues, but a large issue is one which we're tackling right now. How can this continue how, how can this continue to happen in a sustainable manner? Because it, more than likely, if we carry on with current trends, this is not going to work. It's not going to happen. So, as you can imagine, in terms of what's happening with some companies at the moment, we are not exactly sure whether externality management would benefit a company or not. So, typically, managers managers would be very skeptical of this. As, as you just saw with Puma, you know, imagine you there in the boardroom and it's like, well... Do we want this to be implemented, really, because we're making 300 million greenbacks in the year? We're going to maybe give away 7 million, potentially even a half of that because of externality incorporation. Our shareholders are going to be crying. We're going out of business. We don't want this. And that's a fair enough assumption. It's a fair enough view. There's definitely a strong view that's held in the academic literature that says that this is not going to be helpful because firms aren't really about the long term. Firms are all about the short term. It's quarterly reports, it's profit, it's, it's, it's making sure we maximize shareholders in the short term. And unless we are dealing with the, the family business, which interestingly enough is seeing a rise again in world affairs, short-termism is going to make this quite difficult. Then again, some academics have done some studies on firms which are better at managing their externalities, that are more conscious of the costs that they are, they are imposing on others. And there's been a very very plausible and strong correlation that has been found for firms that are more environmentally and socially aware than firms that are not, which is very interesting. So we're trying to think what it is. Is it, on the one hand, is it because, you know, um, perhaps, is it it, it pure luck? Is it the fact that um, there's reputational advantages being held? Is it because they're being managed better? One uh, quite popular opinion is that Firms which are more environmentally conscious tend to buy new capital, which isn't in turn environmentally conscious because of the way society is trying to move towards that way. And because they're using new capital, which is more efficient, their externalities are are less, but the new capital at the same time is helping them maximize their profits. And it's a sort of a case of the, the two came first, the chicken or the egg, yeah. One could easily argue that Um, environmental and social consciousness on the side of the firm has got absolutely nothing to do with it. It just happens that because they buy new capital and they better manage, the capital itself is more environmentally conscious in the way that um, it gets produced or how it actually uh, manages, how, how the firm gets managed around it. And as a result, we have better externality management. To me, I don't think it's the biggest issue in the world because the end game is that externalities are better incorporated in firms which are better managed precisely because that capital is more environmentally efficient and the only reason why that capital really is more environmentally efficient is because society is trying to trying to make it that way um, we saw this in the in the case in terms of unleaded from moving petrol from letter to unleaded Um, once we saw the impact of lead on the atmosphere, there was this massive societal push to get this down into legislation which sees us in terms of having cars which do run better, by the way. Uh, Fuel efficiency is much higher. Uh, I'm not an an expert on on chemistry, but uh, I'm not sure how much it has to do with having lead or not. But the point is that a byproduct of of moving towards a new cars. You know, if you buy a new car, the byproduct will be that it emits less than a car which would have used leaded petrol. But that's because it's an innovation, and it's an innovation that that came about partly because society wanted us to become more environmentally and socially conscious. So, essentially, if we can find firms who use people, process, and technology, and y- using operational efficiencies, we can help to solve this problem. And this is what the crux of the idea ultimately comes towards. So in terms of the solutions, I think that when people are crying about the state of the planet, when they're crying about society and you know the issues that we have and the inequalities, it's people are looking at the effect and they're not treating the cause. They're looking at the symptom and they're crying at it as, a, as opposed to actually trying to get to the root of the problem. So the effect, right... The effect is that we have firms who may not give you know, too much towards being environmentally conscious or externalities, or they're quite, healthy. They, they're quite happy to cut down the Amazon, to let fumes into the atmosphere, because they're going to elicit a high amount of profits, and because their shareholders ultimately don't care, the firms are doing what firms do. They're just responding to the rules of, of, of the free markets. So I don't think the onus is on corporates to solve this problem. The onus is on, is on you and me to actually to actually solve the problem it's on this, the current zeitgeist if we can cause or create a society which is more conscious of this issue and I'm really hoping that maybe there may be someone in this audience today who has the power because we have some fantastic brain power among us to help with this research or she has some influences for environmental and social circles to actually help try sort of bring this issue and agenda through and I don't think it's fair to blame capitalism and the, prop, and, and the proper motive for this uh, just that it's perfectly fair that Lionel Messi gets paid hundreds of millions of rands a year that's because people like soccer it doesn't matter that, it, that it's a bunch of grown men chasing around the ball people value soccer therefore people watch soccer that brings in advertising revenues and gaming revenues therefore Messi gets played, even though he's, he's really chasing after a ball, he's not doing anything intrinsically great for the world, but people value that. So if, we, if people could value externality and cooperation, because we see that it's the right thing to do, it may actually help us. So we need that value change. And by the way, it's not like, I don't, I don't believe it's an actual pipe dream, 150 years ago, it was the norm, 150 to 200 years ago, for slavery to exist. Right? Then we had our William Wilbur forces, we had Abraham Lincolns. Fast forward back a century, a century and a half, slavery is anathema. No one wants it. No one's going to argue, yeah, but you know, it may help you with you know, production all that. It's not, it's not cool. It's, it's, it's terrible. And I think that we could promote a similar paradigm shift within society that could help. And ultimately, once that paradigm shift occurs, it can, it can harness the political will to be written into legislation. And this is where the crux of the matter is going to happen. Will it be one country? Will it be many countries? Um, what's happening at the moment? There are some encouraging signs. We, we know that the UN has founded the of principles. South Africa has got some of the uh, King principles in force. But there is going to need to be perhaps more of an acceleration and a tangible, practical way to tackle these issues in which they can be measured, hence, they can be managed, and therefore accountability can be enforced. To achieve sustainability. So this paper definitely um, gives a good sort of introduction to all these issues and what is quite noticed is that the literature is still very thin in terms of trying to achieve the ideals of the triple bottom line. Um, further research will need to be done particularly on the measurement issues and it's it makes for some fascinating stuff. I'm sure there will be a few geniuses out there who will come up with some fantastic solutions but um, This is not going to really be solved unless real political will, real people will get involved into this. So ultimately we can look for a vision where we can be using renewables, we can be using responsible investing to make sure that we perpetuate constant economic growth, but within the finite resources that we have on this planet. So hopefully that's been well digested in terms of the issues behind this presentation, you may be thinking, well, fantastic, what does this have to do with me? I'm here at the actuarial, con- at the actu- at the actuarial convention. Um, how is this going to be relevant? Well, it is relevant to you as an actuary because we do model the financial bottom line. We model profits. And if the financial bottom line gets diverted ultimately in the future to the economic bottom line, we're going to be able to help not just model financial returns, but use our expertise to model economic returns. We may need The profession may need to perhaps look into being educated into how we're going to incorporate externalities into a firm's ultimate value proposition. So that may indicate a bit of a paradigm shift for the profession. There may also be scope for actuaries to be formed part of a multidisciplinary uh, worldwide push towards trying to work out how we're going to measure externalities. With our modeling expertise, with our mathematical expertise, with our economic and financial expertise, It would be a real shame if the profession didn't get involved and left it solely to perhaps the accounting profession. So I do think that the actuaries can certainly get involved in these issues over here. And ultimately, as an actuary, we do have an obligation as actuaries to act in the public interest. And hopefully I've made the case in this presentation that trying to incorporate externalities of production is definitely to act in the public interest. So... In conclusion, just remember that the difference between the financial bottom line and the economic bottom line are externalities. Measuring is going to be a particular challenge, um, especially for social externalities because they are usually more subjective than environmental externalities. So, a little example which we use is that if I'm taking an evening stroll, you know, around the city skies and I look up and it's, I see the Southern Cross and what a beautiful night it is. It's fantastic. That could mean something to me, it could, it could it could help me with my quality of life. The, you know, the guy or girl who's walking with me could look up and be like, well, I don't really care about the stars, I like the lights here on Times Square, this is beautiful. So, from a social perspective, a lot of subjectivity is going to come in as to what constitutes a social externality. Of course, we've got to be careful about reductionism, about trade-offs, and these things need to be debated um the environmental profit and loss accounts does offer some promise and i do think that more research can be used to sort of see how it can aid with externality management and ultimately it's up to society to drive the initiative if we can change the zeitgeist we can change the system to be more equitable economically for everyone involved and ultimately i think i would be very proud and very happy to see actuaries and the profession getting involved in this because i really do think that we have an incredible amount of value and hopefully from this group over here i would love to hear some fantastic questions some good points i want to see if you agreed i want to see if you disagreed so thank you very much for listening and i'll open the floor for some questions
0: right thanks dan for that well prepared presentation so, the, the floor is open now uh, for some questions. Uh, can we have the roaming mics here in the front? So, I, I see there's a couple of asset consultants and asset managers in the room, and I think that's probably one of the areas where we as actually are confronted with this uh, and we get questions from clients and so on. So, if Willem or Bernard, one of you guys, want to say something or ask a question, please do so. Okay
3: thank you very much for your presentation um, I just wanted to ask your opinion if if one were to change the profit motive to saying not only just to make money but to make money now and in the future it very much aligns with sustainability because a, a corporate can't you know continue to be profitable if it's going to deplete resources which will eventually run out so that, that's sort of my first comment um, and then you raise the point of you know who holds these companies uh, accountable and I just wanted to maybe discuss the example of, I think it's Patagonia, who um, published, you know, they, they put out full-page advert saying, do not buy this product, which was a jacket, I think, and it showed how many litres of water went into this, uh, you know, and, and all the environmental impacts. And they actually found that sales went up um, of this product that they said don't buy, um, purely because they disclosed the impact i think the problem that we face as consumers is that we can't you know you've just got one example of humor we can't necessarily go and compare you know different companies and say uh, which one has the least environmental impact when you make our purchasing decisions and um, but i suppose at the end of the day it's the consumers that need to hold these companies accountable whether we're buying their products or we're choosing suppliers um, and what, what are your thoughts on that
2: uh thank you i think that's an excellent remark um it is something which had come up a bit in, in, in our discussions, and the issue will be ultimately resting on sustainability. Um, so it's gonna be resting on education and taking that, that long-term approach. Um, I do think short-termism will need to be combated somewhat, which will be a challenge, seeing our um, cultural quarterly reviews. Um, but I'm not sure if if you read it, I think in The Economist magazine about six weeks ago, there was an article which, which uh, commented on the benefits of the family business because there's a rise in the family business because family businesses look towards the long term they look towards that, that generational continuity and um, ultimately perhaps this might give an education to firms uh, um, whose board may have that principal agent problem um, so hopefully we can focus more on that in terms of trying to get it implemented across the board um, As was was touched earlier, that will also be a challenge. Um, I do think at this point in time, the industrialized countries are probably going to have to take the lead on this. Um, I think it's going to be a bit difficult for the likes of um, China to take the lead when they can be like, well, you industrialized, you didn't care, why should we? Um, So I do think the example is going to have to come um, probably from within that side of the world. And in terms of getting firms accountable, you're right, they are fir- you know, it's hard to compare at this point because one firm, you know, confers to the GRI, one firm to the car- uh, one firm goes by the carbon disclosure product, which is another issue and there's no real way of to compare it and it leads firms to being quite cynical because you, you, you have the case where, in a, where British American tobacco um, got a, a UN award a few years back for environmental and social consciousness because of their practices, which is a bit of a joke, really. Um, so um, another issue which we need to be careful about is that the larger firms see this as a good way to incorporate a barrier to entry for smaller firms because there may, there may be an initial cost set up to incorporate externalities or to manage them. So we also need to be careful about that. Can
0: I make a
1: comment, oh, hello. Can I make a comment on your question as well? Um, so, in terms of accountability to who, I think it it's it's a range of people. Um, it would be society because they demand some uh, some kind of system um, uh, where the company is rewarded or penalized for the, the the actions that they take. Um it's also being accountable to future generations because you're borrowing from them. Um so there are actually you can actually drill deeper to see who are the stakeholders that you're being accountable to. In terms of the comparability um, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap where we think that everything needs to be all the problems needs to be solved in the economic bottom line um, but that's where the other two bottom lines come in which is your environmental and social social bottom lines um, so if you measure those consistently as well you can determine whether one company has had uh, the worst environmental impact versus another, and not all of that will be captured in an economic bottom line because you're just measuring the monetary externality that either has an environmental or social source, whereas the other two bottom lines are measuring the final effect of all the activities, whether it would be a loss of biodiversity or whatever that is. So that could be me- that could be managed. Uh, I mean, measured in those bottom lines, and that will allow for uh, comparability.
2: Um. I thought that was an excellent presentation. brings, obviously, some very important issues to the fore. Thank you. Um, so I've got uh, two questions particularly relating to your uh, example on Puma. So the first thing is I, I don't recall a, a source being mentioned. So was this something that they, as an original idea, came up with, um, So firstly? And then secondly, it's obviously quite a bold uh, and maybe noble move to go and include something like that. In, in any sort of disclosure, so you I guess got that of some publicly available information. I don't know if it's a year and year in financial return. So it would be obviously for something like was wonderful to understand what uh, what led them to include such information or what incentivized them. Do you have any thoughts or, or insights into into that? Um, I may not have some direct. Um, I don't have direct insight into what may have caused it, but I assume it has to be that the board took an executive decision to show the impact of the externalities. And in their disclosure, they're trying to be environmentally and socially responsible precisely because that is the way the world may be moving. So if you take someone like me, I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the way that they're actually at least trying to measure what their impact is. The real question is going to be, if and when the time comes, uh, when perhaps society or the countries work out a way to um, debit a company for these costs, will they be so happy to actually comply with that ultimately? And that's going to be interesting. Um, the source, by the way, is a company that's called True Cost. That's T R U C O S T. They came up with the environmental profit and loss methodology, and Puma partnered with them. Later, a Danish pharmaceutical company last year um, was also a big corporate to get involved in the EPNL account called Novo Nordisk.
0: So Dan, I guess the big question is, do you wear Pumas or Nikes?
2: I only wear Pumas, <laughs> obviously. Oh, okay. I'm also not a fan of um, certain child practices, but I'm not going to go too much into there.
0: Okay. <laughs> yes, uh, Rob.
4: Um, I don't think we need to be too strongly wedded to capitalism as an ideology um i think what where we're moving is towards broader stakeholder involvement uh, capitalism has focused on shareholder as owner um and capitalism's problem is that it, it rewards capital more than labor because it's efficient um so we we ending up with a situation where we We can't distribute wealth, and we haven't got a a consumer market. We're eating into our consumer market by not employing everybody at living wages. Um, It's a a system that carries the seeds of its own destruction. Um, And As we see more involvement with stakeholder uh, accountability, I think we're going to see a shift. I don't think we would need to call it capitalism anymore, and we certainly do not need to stick our flags on anything. It's, it's just that uh, there's, there's more accountability to a broader public, especially on, uh, with listed companies, but also with other companies. So you've got... Uh, and, and, and the move that we will see is to smaller um, companies because of the alienation involved in the big companies. Um, it's it's I think that's where the future lies and you've been referring to the family business too Um, I think the future lies in in small is beautiful um, rather than the biggest beautiful in fact if you go back to Adam Smith um, the biggest company that he thought about was a pin factory um, with a few people producing pins and otherwise um, the system of the invisible hand envisaged people, individuals, as producers. Um, we are very far from that at the moment, and near uh, um, classical economics um, fails to notice that we haven't actually got a capitalist system at all, uh, not a free enterprise system. Everybody's chasing market share for the purpose of building up barriers to entry, the point you mentioned earlier. And, and of having power in the marketplace and in politics, so it's. it's um, I think we must avoid pinning our flag to an ideology, and, and rather say, where are we going? Um, and, and I think uh, stakeholder accountability is, um, is is a is a way forward for us.
2: Uh, That's a very uh, pertinent point, and. Uh and the risk of getting into an um, economic state. Um, the way that I would respond to that is that, um, look, I think capital has been dominating labor uh, predominantly over the last um, half century, partly because of labor's unwillingness to move on with the times, which has been happening for the last 150 years. Um, and I think that um, the use of capital has has, caught, has caused people who are laborers to perhaps leave, lead better quality of lives than they would have. So if, if, if you take a look at the advent of the, of the computer age, 20 years ago um, that, that capitalist motive of inventing the computer for, uh, for financial gains through IBM, through Google and through Apple would have been very expensive. Today someone who is not, who's not that too well off can afford a computer in the palm of the hand and that wouldn't have been allowed Um, without the rise of capitalism, without the spirit of free thought. So you may be onto something in terms of not pinning our flag necessarily on an ideology, but what what I would propose is that we never use force to try and coerce out of here. Because the minute you use force, and you try to make people forced to not just think, but act differently to the way that you want them, you're just sort of going to put yourself in a bit of a quagmire, Economically, Um, I ultimately think that intelligence will find a way. The the freedom of free thought will always find a way, and it's all very well, you know, berating that this 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 extra inequality that capitalism is breeding, and it's definitely there uh, within countries, between countries. It's it's not so clear. I mean, um, once China freed up, you know, from the 1970s and 1980s, we see that poverty there has poverty that has reduced drastically I think about 700 million people have come out of poverty in the last 20 years and that's due primarily to a more capital a more capitalist motive Um, and and touching on the presentation I think that was I think we're trying to get to the same thing it's about stakeholder involvement so I don't want to force someone to act or, or do a certain way but I think it's better if we can influence the zeitgeist and influence that sense of responsibility which I don't think ultimately is impossible to do.
0: Question in the back, the man with that.
5: head. Um, I feel like this was a fantastic presentation, a eh? um, very wonderful presentation.
2: Thank you very much. Um,
5: when I looked at this paper, I was like, what do we have a Julius Malema now in the society? Because <laughs> I felt as a shareholder, I'm not going to entertain this thing of someone Wanting to tell me that we need to take account of the social and environmental externalities. What I want is my profit share, and I want to run away. Um, and I feel looking into the future, this is what we need to do. It's a, it's a superb paper. It's a superb paper. But one would say, wait a minute, this is going to open a very serious can kind of worms. Someone would say, given South Africa as a country where we come from, we know of how many companies have exploited human beings beyond imagination how companies came here made a profit. I mean, just go to Limpopo go to Rustenbeck, you'll see the areas where the mines are uh, how massive exploitation has been and how environment has been left in dire uh, uh, situations. Someone will say no, 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 Mr. Ginsberg, let's now start and value the quantum of how much exploitation has happened and now let's solve that bit first. And if we can now say we want to do that that's good. It's, there's going to be a whole lot of cry from whatever companies that did uh, that uh, damage and are still in existence now. And that's a problem that I see that whatever this paper is trying to achieve, if someone can just say, let's look at what has happened before and let's solve it first, I feel that might not fly.
2: Hmm. Right, so, so obviously we're dealing with uh, past economic issues, it's very important to to try and see how we can pragmatically strip that out. Um, so, in terms of you know looking um, at the current inequalities that you may see in the uh, Bushveldt minerals complex in the northwest over there, uh, yes, you know um, we see that perhaps uh, issues that have been happening in terms of strikes is because of large inequality. But we need to be very careful in um, blaming it solely on capital as opposed to labour, because if labour doesn't want to play capital will find a way ultimately Um, in terms of addressing the issues of um, the past that will be seriously interesting geopolitically Um, to give a bit of a cynical perspective I really believe that um, often it's not about the principle it's about the politics and uh, enforcing something is often down to who can do what to whom as we see in geopolitics with regards to um, issues of the past it'll be interesting to see how we could um, address it but if we're looking at a world you know a worldwide issue where do we stop because you know um, the French could go to the Germans today and blame them for what happened to them 60 years ago the Germans in turn can go back to you know the, uh, go to wars with Russia from the 19th century um, or in turn could go back to the Italians because you know they had, they had fights with Rome so where do you begin and where do you stop I've Ultimately, it's um, sadly the, the, the human experience worldwide has been that of conflict it's uh, perhaps almost an evolutionary mechanism which um, our common humanity is fighting against and hopefully we'll find a way to get past that um, but again we've got to be careful of the, the quagmires that may be involved in how far we go back
0: okay, I think the last are que- I mean, you can ask questions and then Mike and then just wait for the two questions before you answer Okay. Thanks.
3: I I think you're asking all the right questions. I I am very concerned by the reductionism. I think the quality of human life and what we expect from someone's existence is not something that can be reduced to to ransom sense. And when you you start talking about labor not coming to the party and and not wanting to talk, I think it's because capital comes with the we only want to talk about ransom sense and not about uh, what it means to be a human. And when you say slavery has been eradicated, best estimates are that 27 million people are still in slavery today, uh, despite the fact that it's completely illegal, because that labor is capitally very, very, very cheap. And so capital overlooks the fact that it's illegal to put people into slavery. And that's
0: what you get from reductionism. Mike, before that, Ian's girlfriend. He's here in the front for you guys. I think that will be our closing question. You can just
6: make your closing remarks. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, sorry. Um, for me, well, it, you can call it a question, but it's more a comment than a question. It's quite interesting what uh, people are raising in here. Um, and I'm going to just give examples, and people have touched on, on that briefly. Uh, so there's what we call conscious capitalism. Um, I'm sure you might have heard of it. And it really touches on exactly the same issues you're talking about, um, where you know companies just need to be responsible and it's really for sustainability. So if you're a shareholder like me, I'll probably differ with other comments. I don't want just to see the money. I also want to see how that money has been made and how sustainable it is. Now let's get into examples. And the examples are right here in South Africa. Platinum mines, they were making a lot of money and that has already been mentioned. Unfortunately, some of it didn't translate into welfare issues uh, that include housing, for example. Now, that's a very simple, straightforward social issue, which today, because of low platinum price, uh, the issues are still there, but they were not addressed when, uh, money, when they were making real money, when it could have been done. In my view, you needed a profit and loss account charge, probably annually, to address those issues because they are there and they are known to be there. I don't know how easy it is but i think that should have been done the second point deals with environmental issues so the first one is social issues environmental issues simple again mining rehabilitation there is no charge in the profit and loss account at the moment all you need to do is go to a bank or an insurance company get a guarantee today from a bank and if the mine closes or the bank realizes that the money is like mine is likely to close or whatever they may think of, that guarantee might not be renewed, which means there is no money being put aside. Now, every year it would have been prudent, or it's actually prudent, to have in your profit and loss account a charge on mining rehabilitation uh, so that you can deal with environmental issues. So these issues are there. I think it it is difficult to apply depending on which company you're talking about. Some companies, very difficult to, to do the measurement but in South Africa, <laughs> in terms of mining, as an example, you can actually do that. So conscious capitalism it is if you want sustainability.
0: Good. Thanks for that, Michael. Thanks, John. I think you guys made more comments and uh, questions. We've already overrun by five minutes, so Dan and Taran will still be here. Um, so please stop by afterwards and ask them your questions. So uh, thanks, everybody, and enjoy the And Remember to pick up your, your printed books if you ordered one. Thank you.